This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When the Ng family moved from Hong Kong to New York City in 1995, it was to provide a better education for their two children, Simon and Sharon. The siblings could not have been more different. Sharon was the older of the two and was naturally social and outgoing, while Simon was quiet and preferred studying to socializing. Over the next few years, the brother and sister finished high school and continued with life in New York. Their parents eventually moved back to Hong Kong, leaving them alone in the apartment they shared. Simon, now 18, and Sharon, now 21, were expected to continue with their studies in college. This change marked a turning point for Simon in particular, who had relied heavily on his parents not only financially, but emotionally. To cope with the loneliness and insecurity about his future, in 2002, Simon found an outlet to express himself through an online blog. He didn't write very much at the start, just four posts, mostly about his classwork and how much he enjoyed playing his favorite video games. After that, his blogging stopped, and it would be another three years before he posted anything further. That was in 2002, and by 2005, Simon Ng was even more lonely and unhappy with life. So he took to blogging again, with the hope that it would make him feel better. In one post, he tried to explain his emotional state, saying, Imagine a guy who doesn't know how to take care of himself and has been relying on others for like 18 years, all of a sudden have to take care of themselves. So it's been hell. Two meals rarely and one meal a day, most likely. Another time, while at home not feeling well, he posted, Life has been really hard lately. I'm still ill and it's zapping my every strength. No money, you know. I can ask my sister for some if I wanted. She usually asks me if I need any, but I declined since she doesn't make much and likes to waste money. No smiles today. Too tired. Exhausted. When will I recover? Finding motivation from his blog posts and looking for other, more constructive channels to help him through the tough times, Simon enrolled in a summer class and was also looking forward to a promising job opportunity. By spring 2005, things were finally starting to turn the corner for the 19-year-old. He was writing more and more on his blog, and the positive change in his mood could be seen in his posts. A post on Thursday, May 12, 2005, shows the teen was in a good mood despite missing class. He wrote, Today, I missed my Japanese class again since I've gotten a bad throat. I only went to the class once this week, so I'm probably so far behind now. I will catch up in the summer, though, so no worries. While the blog post that day showed he wasn't too worried about catching up on schoolwork, as the online journal entry continued, it became clear that he was concerned about something else. He would have had no idea that, as he wrote, his life was only moments away from being cut short and that his final post would lead police right to the person who killed him. As Simon continued writing that day, his lighthearted tone about missing class turned more serious. He wrote, Today has been weird. At three, some guy rang the bell. I went down and recognized it was my sister's former boyfriend. He told me he wants to get his fishing poles back, I told him to wait downstairs while I get them for him. While I was searching for them, he's already in the house. He's still here right now, smoking, walking all around the house with his shoes on, 
which, by the way, I just washed the floor two days ago. Hopefully he will leave soon. Oh yeah, working on the school report as we speak. The man hanging around the apartment was 25-year-old Jin Lin. He and Simon's sister Sharon had dated for the past five years, but had broken up months earlier. Sharon had started seeing someone else, which did not go over well with her ex-boyfriend. According to reports, Jin Lin was involved in an altercation with the pair not long after they started dating. Despite this, he was still someone Simon knew, so let him hang out in the apartment while he continued to write on his blog. His last entry was posted at just after 5pm when he wrote Jin Lin was becoming agitated and that he wished he would leave. However, he did not leave the apartment. Shortly after his final entry was posted to the website, Simon was brutally attacked by his sister's ex-boyfriend. His hands and feet were bound with duct tape as Jin Lin ransacked the apartment looking for money and valuables. He later told authorities that he knew their parents often sent them cash, but he was unable to find any during the search. When Sharon came home around 9.30 that night, Jin Lin was waiting. The moment she walked through the door, she was ambushed. Sharon managed to call her boyfriend during the encounter and said someone had broken in and that she feared for her safety. Her boyfriend and his friend went over to the apartment right away, and what they found when they entered was nothing short of horrific. The first thing they saw was Simon lying on the floor in a pool of blood, still bound with tape. He was not moving, and would later be pronounced dead at the scene. They quickly found Sharon in her bedroom. She was lying in her bed, which, by that point, was soaked with her blood. The 21-year-old was rushed to the hospital, where she died an hour later. When police arrived, they found an 8-inch butcher's knife covered in blood on the floor in the bathroom. They also found Simon's online blog right there on his computer screen. It took just a few moments of reading for authorities to have their main suspect, Jin Lin. He was taken into custody for questioning, but insisted he had no knowledge of the gruesome incident or had any recent contact with Sharon or her family. That was until he found out about Simon's blog entry. Then his story changed. He admitted to going to the apartment to steal cash, but when Simon became suspicious, he tied the teenager up and waited for Sharon to come home to rob her. Although Jin Lin insisted it was a robbery gone bad, police believe it was a crime of passion based on the number of stab wounds discovered on the victims. In all, the brother and sister were stabbed almost 60 times, with the majority of the wounds inflicted to the chest and neck areas. Whatever the reason for the senseless double homicide, he was charged with first-degree murder, attempted robbery, and first-degree burglary. In July 2008, after a four-week trial, Jin Lin was sentenced to life with no chance of parole. At sentencing, the judge did not waste words, telling him simply, There is no place in the civilized world for you. Simon Ng became a first-hand witness to the moments leading up to his own murder. His final blog posts gave authorities everything they needed to find his and his sister's killer. But this is not the only time a victim solved their own murder. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. In 2000, fearing for his life, ex-KGB officer Alexander Litvinenko fled Russia and headed for England. 
It all started about 12 years earlier, when, in 1998, he exposed an alleged plot to assassinate a Russian business mogul by supporters of his political rival. The move was seen by some as a power grab, and they accused Litvinenko of treason. One general was reported to have said the accusation alone should be punishable by death, and that if he met Litvinenko in a dark corner, he would kill him with his own hands. For exposing the plot, he was arrested, charged with abusing the power of his office, but later found not guilty in court. However, that didn't stop Russian security forces from rearresting him and throwing him in prison for almost a year. When he was released, he and his family left the country and spent the next six years living quietly in London. While taking refuge in England, Alexander Litvinenko started a company that offered advisory services focused on investing in Russia. To those around him, it looked like he had embraced a more conventional life, and that's exactly what he wanted people to think. In 2003, he began secretly working with British intelligence, otherwise known as MI6, in a role described by officials as a consultant. He was provided a secret alias, along with a fake British passport in the same name. With his cover established, Litvinenko would regularly meet his MI6 handler in a bookstore cafe. There, he would provide the intelligence service with information on the Russian mafia and links to Kremlin officials. With the vast amount of information he was able to provide, the former Russian security official was considered an invaluable asset. So, when the 43-year-old suddenly fell ill and died a horribly painful death a short time later, the intelligence community was quick to suspect foul play. It also helped that before he died, Alexander Litvinenko was able to tell authorities exactly who killed him, and when, and how they did it. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On November 1st, 2006, Litvinenko was invited to a meeting at the Millennium Hotel in London. He was there to see an old colleague from his security days back in Russia, named Andrei Lugovoy, who was interested in working with Litvinenko's advisory firm. The two were joined by one of Lugovoy's associates, named Dmitry Kovtun. When the three men sat down at a table in the bar area, there was already a teapot and cups waiting. Litvinenko poured himself some tea and took a few sips before putting the cup down. After a short meeting, the group parted ways, and the former Russian intelligence officer turned British agent went about his daily routine. Two days later, however, on November 3rd, Litvinenko was admitted to the hospital with acute internal pain and nausea. To the doctors treating him, 
it looked like he was showing signs of radiation poisoning, but with no exposure that he was aware of. How could that be? They were so sure of their diagnosis that medical staff used a Geiger counter, but the reading showed there was no contamination. Yet, as Litvinenko's vital organs were shutting down, and with his white blood cells rapidly disappearing, the medical team were left asking what else it could possibly be. If he hadn't been exposed to high amounts of external radiation, then it stood to reason that it was something internal, such as poison. As medical experts worked to solve what was killing their patient, their patient was working with police to solve the case. Litvinenko may not have known exactly what was killing him, but he knew where authorities could start looking. He told detectives about his former life with Russian intelligence, the reason for his asylum in England, and the meeting he recently had with his former colleague, Andrei Lugovoy, and his associate, Dmitry Kovtin. Two weeks after being admitted to the hospital, doctors were no closer to finding the cause of his physical decline. Litvinenko was placed on an emergency organ transplant list, but if answers were not found quickly, he would certainly die. The damage to his body was extensive and getting worse by the day. In a last-ditch effort to figure out what was killing him, blood samples were sent to Britain's top-secret nuclear research site at Aldermaston. The team found that Alexander Litvinenko had been poisoned with polonium-210, a naturally occurring radioactive isotope that, in high doses, is extremely toxic to humans. Because it cannot pass through skin, it has to be ingested for it to be lethal. And while polonium-210 does emit radiation, it's not the same type that would be easily detectable by a Geiger counter. So when the hospital tried to use one, nothing registered, despite all the symptoms pointing to radiation poisoning. The medical team received the news on November 23, 2006, 22 days after the meeting at the Millennium Hotel where he was poisoned. The following day, Alexander Linfinenko died. Confirmation that it was in fact a radioactive substance used to kill him triggered an emergency response to locate any possible contamination sites. Whatever unknown substance they're looking for, it required multiple layers of gloves to protect those whose job it is to handle and look for potentially deadly material. The police say they do not believe there is any risk to anyone else. But the site in a city centre park next to a children's playground of officers wearing clothing associated with chemical and biological material is bound to alarm some. A team of scientists set out to the locations Litvinenko had been in the days leading up to when he first became sick, starting with the Millennium Hotel. The crisis team began with the teapots and quickly found the one they were looking for. The test results on that particular one showed 10 times the amount of polonium needed to kill someone, and that was after it had been through the dishwasher several times. The scientists then headed up to the rooms where Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovden stayed. In Kovden's room, the team found almost 40 times the lethal amount of polonium-210 in the bathroom sink. This is where investigators believe he discarded the remaining poison after contaminating the teapot. After tracking their movements before and after the meeting at the hotel, the team detected polonium at every location they went. This is how authorities discovered there was a previous assassination attempt. That one occurred just a couple of weeks earlier in mid-October, when they poisoned his cup during a meeting, but Lenvinenko never used it. That's when they set up the meeting at the hotel. Police had their primary suspects and the murder weapon. 
They knew exactly when it happened and where it happened. They had a trail of radioactive evidence leading directly to Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovnin. But taking them into custody would prove to be a diplomatic challenge. This was a blatant and unacceptable breach of the most fundamental tenets of international law and of civilized behavior. Both deny having any involvement in the assassination, and Russia maintains it has no knowledge of any state-sanctioned operation. Despite this, in 2007, the British government formally requested extradition on charges of murder. The request, not surprisingly, was ignored by Russian officials, who regard the two men as national heroes. Not only was Andrei Lugovoy appointed to the Russian parliament, which made him immune from prosecution, but he was also presented with a medal for his service to Russia. As if his hatred of those he deemed treasonous to the motherland wasn't on display enough, he went on to host his own television show, aptly called Traitors. Dmitry Kovtin went on to become a business consultant in Russia and has said that he won't cooperate with the investigation until he receives permission from the Russian authorities. Given the government's response to the situation, that might be a while. Alexander Litvinenko was an outspoken critic of Russian policies and politicians, and knew before he died that it had cost him his life. Thankfully, he also knew all the details of his own murder, and was instrumental in helping British authorities solve the crime. reached out for comment from the Kremlin, also the FSB, and it should come as no surprise that Russian officials have not yet opened any criminal investigation into the poisoning. I'm on one. What's your emergency? When emergency responders arrived at Russell and Barbara Steger's house in the early morning hours of February 1st, 1988, they found Russell in bed with blood flowing from his head. He was breathing, but paramedics would have to work quickly if they were going to save his life. As they were treating him, his wife Barbara kept insisting that she didn't like the guns her husband kept in the house. She repeatedly told paramedics that Russell slept with a twenty-five caliber pistol under his pillow, and that it accidentally fired when she brushed against it that fateful morning. Six hours after being shot, Russell was pronounced dead. Russell Steger's death, while tragic, might have been ruled an accident if not for a couple of curious things. First, this was not the only time Barbara Steger's husband was killed. Ten years earlier, in March 1978, her first husband, Larry Ford, died under remarkably similar circumstances. Like Russell, Larry was found in bed, shot dead with a 25 caliber handgun. According to Barbara, the gun had been purchased the day before the accident, for protection. Authorities determined that Larry had been inspecting the new weapon and, unaware that it was loaded, pulled the trigger. His death at the time was ruled accidental. That seemed a lot less probable when her second husband met the same fate a decade later. When Russell Steger's ex-wife approached authorities the day after his death with information that pointed to Barbara as the killer, police were interested. In the weeks leading up to his untimely death, Russell had confided in her that if anything happened to him, investigators should look closely at Barbara. Although the couple seemed happy, Russell had become suspicious after Barbara had removed large amounts of money from their shared account. He was also growing concerned that she was having multiple affairs. Investigators were still poring over the information provided by Russell's ex-wife when they received what would turn out to be 
the most important evidence in the case. As if he was speaking from the grave, an audio tape recorded just three days before his death was found while cleaning out his office. On the tape, he documented his suspicions about Barbara and his belief that she was planning to kill him. When authorities received the audio recording and listened to the first-hand concerns from the deceased victim himself, a case built primarily on speculation now had solid evidence. Now that investigators had evidence and a motive, they were certain Russell's death was no accident. On April 18, 1988, a few months after the shooting, Barbara Steger was charged with first-degree murder and taken into custody. During the trial the following year, the jury heard the nine-minute audio recording of Russell Steger describing the last days of his life. The last few nights, Barbara has woken me up and gave me what she said was too aspirin. She stood there to see if I took it. I did not take it. The first one, I don't know what happened, but according to his parents, there was some foul play going on. He supposedly accidentally shot himself in their bedroom. My question is, did her husband, Larry Ford, accidentally shoot himself? Sometimes I wonder. The witness testimony from Beyond the Grave was enough to convince the jury. After deliberating for just 45 minutes, in May 1989, Barbara Steger was found guilty and sentenced to death. However, the Black Widow killer, as she would be dubbed by the media, appealed and the sentence was reduced to life in prison. Now 72 years old, Barbara Steger remains behind bars at the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women, thanks in large part to the post-mortem testimony of her murdered husband. In January 1897, 24-year-old Elva Zona Heaster was found dead at the foot of the staircase in the home she and her husband Edward shared. The couple had only been married for a few months, and when news of the incident reached Edward at his place of work, he rushed home immediately. It took the local doctor just over an hour to arrive at the home, and by then, Edward had not only moved Elva's body from the foot of the stairs to their bedroom, but had washed and dressed her for the funeral. Suspicious behavior, perhaps, but that was disregarded once the doctor classified her cause of death as everlasting faint. This was eventually changed to complications from pregnancy, but ultimately foul play was not suspected. At least, not by the doctor who examined her. Elva's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, however, was convinced Edward had something to do with her daughter's death, but without proof, there was no case. Then, several weeks after her death, Elva appeared to her mother in a dream to describe the events leading up to her untimely demise. The spirit, as her mother called it, visited four nights in a row and told her that Edward was an abusive husband who had broken her neck after becoming enraged about not getting meat with his dinner. According to Mary Jane, the spirit of her daughter, who had taken human form, turned her head fully around to show her neck was broken. Convinced that what she had witnessed was, in fact, the ghost of her deceased daughter, Mary Jane approached the local prosecutor with what she had learned. The story was enough for the prosecutor to start looking into the case, and after a bit of investigating, decided to exhume Elva's body and conduct a full autopsy, which had not been performed previously. When the body was re-examined, 
it was clear that her death was not from complications due to pregnancy. Her neck had been broken, and there were finger marks on her throat. The ligaments around the area had been torn, and her windpipe had been crushed. Everything Elva's mother had told the prosecutor prior to the autopsy had been accurate. Her husband Edward was eventually charged with murder, and the case went to court. Mary Jane Heaster was the primary witness, based on her conversations with Elva's spirit. While the prosecutors avoided the topic of a ghost, the defense lawyers used it to try and discredit the argument. However, Mary Jane's unwavering insistence that her daughter's spirit came to her to detail the crime seemed to resonate with the jurors. It only took them an hour and ten minutes to find Edward guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, where he died a couple of years later of pneumonia. Elva became known as the Greenbrier Ghost, after the name of the town in West Virginia, where she died. A plaque at the Greenbrier County Cemetery commemorating Elva's death reads, in part, Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband Edward. Only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched by Haley Gray and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.